0: The optimal target for oxygenation in the post-arrest patients.
1: The brain is one of those that we have yet to figure out a solution to.
2: Still struggle in many arenas to accomplish that.
3: This is not a study of hyperoxia.
1: Toxic ischemic brain injuries is pretty devastating.
3: This study really reflects our change in practice.
1: Well, welcome everyone to Critical Care
0: Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. We, as always, are super excited that you are joining us for this podcast here on CCPEM, where we are going to continue the discussion and talk about the second part of a trial we did on our last podcast. But before doing that, I must introduce simply the stars behind the podcast here, Dr. Peter W. Dr. John Greenwood and Dr. Rob Rodriguez. Gentlemen, so thankful that we have this opportunity to record together. Peter, let me start with you this time. How are things in New Orleans?
2: So, things in New Orleans are still pretty hot and steamy and pretty exciting because there's a major storm out in the Gulf. And so we're all very anxiously watching the weather channel.
0: Yes, um apprehension in the days coming. We see where that storm is it Ian now?
2: Yes, it's Ian. And so we're waiting to see where that's going to wind up.
0: Well, I think all eyes will certainly be on the Gulf Coast, everywhere from, I guess, maybe even Texas, Louisiana through Florida. And so we certainly send our best wishes to everybody in those regions that this storm doesn't turn out to be as intense as predicted and everyone weathers the storm just fine. Dr. Greenwood, how are things in Pennsylvania?
1: Philadelphia is wonderful. No natural disasters to contend with, as we were kind of talking about before, just maybe some local ones, was working all weekend and had a great couple of shifts, had a great senior resident. Mike, I was telling you, one of those rewarding patient encounters, a young gentleman in his 40s who had a recent procedure and was off his anticoagulation, but came in with like a completely dense right-sided hemiplegia, like could barely talk, was fully functional prior and received TPA for a large MCA occlusion, then went to neuro IR. I went and visited him on Sunday, the day after, and his deficit was nearly completely gone. So <laughs> one of those shifts and one of those patient encounters were, had a great team, nurses, neurology, everyone involved quickly, things went smoothly and had a good outcome. So felt really good about that. One of those that you say, yeah, I'm really happy... Yeah, I really love my job. So things are going well, Mike. Thanks.
0: That's outstanding, John. Thanks so much for sharing that case with us. And so glad to hear that that patient is doing well. All right, Dr. Rodriguez, we'll wrap things up out on the West Coast with you, and then we'll get started with this month's
3: podcast. Yeah, the weather out here is great, as usual, for September and early October. And we're all getting pretty excited about ASAP. And hopefully... Some of our listeners are joining us, and yeah, looking forward to that great meeting.
0: And we wish everyone going to ASEP this
3: year safe travels out to
0: your neck of the woods and hope that they have a fantastic and very educational time in San Francisco.
3: Yeah, my favorite restaurant in all of San Francisco, the House of Nan King, N-A-N-K-I-N-G. All right, well, you're putting the pressure on us. We've got to get this <laughs> out there posted ahead of
0: ASAP, so folks aren't listening to this on the back end wishing they had had visited that restaurant.
3: (laughs) No, I get no kickbacks from stating that.
0: Sounds good. Well, thanks for that recommendation, Rob. Well, let's dive into this month's topic or this podcast topic. And recall on our last podcast, we talked about some post-arrest care. Specifically, we talked about blood pressure targets in post-arrest care or survivors of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, in which the take-home message from that particular part one of the box trial was that, well, there wasn't any significant difference in death or severe disability in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who had a target post-arrest map of 65 versus 75 millimeters of mercury. Well, the investigators weren't done. This was actually A two part trial. And another key component that we've talked about before here on the podcast is really supplemental oxygenation or just oxygenation in general. What's the optimal target for oxygenation in the post arrest patient? So that's what we're going to get into during this podcast. John, I'm going to turn things over to you. Set the stage, give us the background of this second part of the box trial.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're all aware hypoxic ischemic brain injuries is pretty devastating and it's one of those things that in medicine we've learned how to replace organs we've learned how to temporarily support organs but the brain is one of those that we have yet to figure out a solution to and in fact not only is it the most commonly injured organ but it's actually the leading cause of death after ROSC in patients with cardiac arrest. So during resuscitation, the brain is exposed to hypoxia, largely due to a low flow perfusion state. And then it's followed by reperfusion injury when we get return of spontaneous circulation after our resuscitative efforts. So there's a number of thoughts about what could be happening that causes brain injury, some potential pathophysiologic links between brain injury and oxygenation occur in probably the early period of cardiac arrest and then ROSC and driven largely by this large degree of inflammation that can happen after reperfusion occurs. Patients who remain comatose after ROSC are usually intubated and initiated on mechanical ventilation and receive supplemental oxygen. So in recent years, a number of studies and trials have investigated both hyperoxia, and hypoxia on mortality in patients with cardiac arrest. In fact, two recent trials, specifically the HOT-ICU trial and icu ROCS trial, didn't show a difference in ventilator days between patients who received liberal versus restrictive oxygen targets. However, a subgroup analysis of the icu ROCS trial suggested that maybe conservative O2 treatment might be better. So there remains clinical equipoise regarding oxygen targets in patients who remain comatose after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So that's where this trial comes in, this arm of the box trial. So Peter, maybe you could walk us through the objective and what the methods were from this trial.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, John. Thanks for setting that up for me. When we talk about the objectives here, the primary objective is to evaluate whether a restrictive versus a liberal oxygen target was superior in patients who remain comatose from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So these aren't all cardiac arrests. These are the ones who remain comatose after our resuscitative efforts. So the methods here, it's investigator-initiated, open label, randomized trial with a two-by-two factorial design. The places that held the study were two tertiary cardiac arrest centers in Denmark. What did the patients look like? Well, the inclusion criteria, adults aged 18 years or older, they had to be comatose after their out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and it had to be of a presumed cardiac etiology, so no real trauma cases, and as well as no stroke. Who was excluded? those patients who had an unwitnessed arrest and were in asystole, those with suspected intracranial bleeding or stroke. So those are the two exclusions, unwitnessed asystole and then suspected intracranial bleeding or stroke. Now the interventions, under general medical care, patients received targeted temperature management to 36 degrees Celsius for 24 hours with then followed by 72 hours of active normothermia. So targeted temperature management for the first 24, followed by active normothermia for the next 72. Those same patients sedation with either propofol and or fentanyl for 24 hours, and that was reduced during rewarming to reassess serially the patient's neurological status. Now, randomization. In the restrictive targeted group, this was a target PAO2 of 68 to 75. That was their target. The initial FIO2 setting was set at 30%. And this was then adjusted to maintain the assigned target. And again, that target 68 to 75 PAO2. Now we compare that with a liberal group. And that liberal targeted group Their goal was 98 to 105, PAO2. So pretty big difference between 68 to 75 now to 98 in the liberal group to 105. The initial FIO2 setting was set at 60% and then that was adjusted to reach the assigned target. And again, that target, 98 to 105. The primary outcome was the composite of death or discharge from the hospital with a CPC, which is the cerebral performance category, of three or four within 90 days or at the time of discharge. Now, we look also at secondary outcomes the evil marker of cerebral dysfunction, the plasma neurospecific enolase levels at 48 hours. So, that's a measure that was followed serially. And then, death from any cause and then 90-day scores on the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, MRS, and CPC. So from an adverse events tracking standpoint, there was really six that they looked at. One was bleeding, another infection, another arrhythmia or dysrhythmia, another was electrolyte derangement. The second to last was acute kidney injury with renal replacement therapy, and lastly was seizures, and those were the adverse events. Now, I'm gonna turn it over to you, Rob, to break down what the results were for this study.
3: Yeah, thanks, Peter. That was a very nice summary of the methods of the study. And from March, 2017 to December of 2021, they enrolled 802 patients. After excluding a number of patients for withdrawal of consent, And a patient who is randomized twice, they wound up with 789 patients included in the analysis. And they were evenly matched, 394 in the restrictive target group versus 395 in the liberal target group. The characteristics of these two groups were well-balanced, including their oxygen levels, their PaO2 and FiO2 levels, upon arrival to the ICU at the beginning of the study. So again, 394 in in one group, 395 in the other. Characteristics are very well matched between the two groups before the intervention. In terms of the delivery of the oxygen and intervention, separation between the two groups was seen within two to four hours. They remain separated in terms of targets through the first 48 hours of the study. So they truly appear to accomplish their separation of targets in this study. The median duration of mechanical ventilation was 57 hours in the restrictive target group and 61 hours in the liberal target group. In terms of their primary outcome, which again was a composite of death or discharge from the hospital with a cerebral performance category of three or four, within 90 days or time of discharge. There were no statistical differences between the two groups. That outcome was seen in 32% of the restrictive target group and 33.9% of the liberal target group. And the results remain consistent across subgroup analyses with no interaction in terms of the other trial, the box trial one, that looked at blood pressure targets. In terms of secondary outcomes, there were no differences as well. At death from any cause at 90 days, there were 28.7% deaths in the restrictive target group, 31.1% in the liberal target group. There were no differences in the NSE levels. There were no differences in the Montreal Cognitive Assessment levels. There was no statistical difference in AKI with the need for renal replacement therapy. And finally, in terms of adverse events, the most common adverse events were infection, bleeding, and seizures, but there were no significant differences between the two groups. So basically, no difference in in any of the outcome measures or adverse events between the two groups. All right, Rob, you guys have done an outstanding job thus far
0: setting the background, going through the methods of this part two of the box trial, and then really the results. Let me just mention a few limitations here, and then I want to open it up and see how we apply this to the bedside. Like any study we talk about here on CCPM, um, there are always limitations, and the authors identified limitations Well, open-label. That makes sense in terms of titrating supplemental O2 and achieving different targets. Ultimately, in terms of another limitation is that when they evaluated patients at 90 days, there was still a limited number of those who could truly be evaluated in person at that three-month follow-up. In addition, their P to F ratios were a little bit higher in this trial when compared to others. And you heard John mention a few others in the introduction and setting the background. And well, that may suggest that overall the cause or hypoxic respiratory failure in these patients was actually infrequent compared to other trials. And overall, they looked at an isolated number of patients without a hospital cardiac arrest, those with presumed cardiac etiology. Now, that makes up the larger percentage, but it still does exclude other etiologies or patients who have had other causes of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest it may not necessarily be generalizable, but the authors simply state that with this trial there really wasn't a difference in that composite outcome of death or severe disability at 90 days for these out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients with presumed cardiac etiology who got either a restrictive or a liberal oxygen target. So gentlemen, I'm going to open this up to us and see how would you directly apply this to the bedside. We see cardiac arrest patients probably almost every shift We get ROSC, hopefully, in many of these cases, and we've talked about TTM and who should go for early cardiac cath, and we've talked about blood pressure, what's that ideal pressure that we should be shooting for, and now we're talking about really setting oxygenation. John, I'm going to kick it to you first. Now, for me, as I think about interpreting the study, applying it to the bedside, the studies that I've reviewed and we've talked about before, well, I think we can all be on board that too low of an oxygenation is bad. So PaO2 is less than 60, not good for many critically ill states. But often hyperoxia, too much oxygenation, most of the studies have looked at a PaO2 about 300 or above as an association with poor outcome. And while there was a distinctly different target with respect to the two groups here, liberal versus restrictive, do you feel like, I guess, was it wide enough to really evaluate whether too much oxygen or liberal oxygen administration is harmful.
1: Yeah, Mike, you're setting me up perfectly. That was one of the interesting things I looked at immediately when Peter was really talking about the methods, right? So this was actually kind of cool. So how they did it, they decided to set their initial FiO2 on the ventilator to either 30% or 60%, right? Not a hundred percent. And I think the standard practice in many places is after intubation, a hundred percent, maybe get a blood gas and then start slowly titrating down. But they started at a much lower number than I think many of us, at least the standard practices, probably a lot of different places. And so as a result, their initial PaO2s were probably much, much lower, below that 300 millimeters of mercury that I think many of us see on that first blood gas. And what we've talked about as maybe being associated with poor outcome due to a hyperoxic vasoconstriction that sometimes you can get. So I think this Population that they studied were set up for success in the sense of maybe not having exposure to something that we, I think, feel and has been associated with a significant danger or harm. So, this may be the classic example of how we're seeing practices change over the course of the past 10 to 15 years of research, whereas. In sepsis, for example, right, that Manny Rivers trial that had a mortality of 40% in their patients due to old practice, or maybe even how we used to start ventilator settings on 10 to 15 cc's per kilo per ideal body weight, and now we've moved to a more conservative six to eight cc's for lung protective ventilation, doing a trial where we're setting up these patient groups and comparing more moderate levels of oxygen are finding that mortality maybe is a little bit less than what we might think. So it's quite possible that they set this up in a way that wasn't designed or wouldn't be able to find a difference because our general practice has changed. So bottom line is, is I think that I do like that they started their FiO2s lower, but I think maybe there's just not that much of a difference between these groups.
0: Well said. Let me ask you one more question before turning things over to Dr. Rodriguez, who on screen here in this recording is clamoring to make some statements. But having said that, John, you have the post-arrest patient. You want to know where their oxygenation is starting. We've got AHA guidelines that say target 92 to 96 or 98% with a pulse ox reading. Do you in your practice often get an ABG? to kind of see where things are starting from a PAO2 standpoint and then titrating O2?
1: I can say my general practice is that I usually do end up placing an arterial line in these patients for hemodynamic monitoring, especially kind of as we're initiating targeted temperature management and a few other things. I find it to be a very simple way to get serial lactates, serial PCO2 measurements and other things where I'm thinking about how can I optimize this patient's chances for success. So it's not an absolute requirement, but in general comes along with the other things that I'm doing. So I do tend to get one pretty early.
0: Sounds good. All right, Dr. Rodriguez, you want to make some comments?
3: Yeah, I put in the chat that John stole my thunder, but of course he said it much better than I ever could. So thanks for that. Yeah, I do want to re-emphasize his point that this study is a very different study. This is not a study of hyperoxia. This is more a study of general oxygenation levels that do not include hyperoxia. So I would emphasize the point that you should be at post-arrest, I believe you should be doing it like they did in the restrictive group. You should be starting at 30% and titrating up from there. During the resuscitation before ROSC and immediately after ROSC, the vent is always set at 100%. So the first thing that I do is I dial that down to 30%. And I look at their SAT and in answer to the other question, I may send a blood gas. I don't commonly do that, but I would say that if I do have questions, I'll send a blood gas. But I'm just titrating there at that point, post-resuscitation. I'm titrating my SAT to about 95%, basically, making sure that it's not drifting into that 99 and 100% range. So post-ROSC, dial down your ventilator from 100% as soon as you can to 30% or whatever it takes to keep them above 90%, around 95%. That's my main take on this, is this study really is as John indicated, reflects our change in practice and a good change in practice. So other than that, I think that when you compare the two groups in terms of their target saturations, the upper limit on the restrictive was 75 millimeters of mercury and the lower limit, and they're pretty narrow ranges, they have 68 to 75 and then 98 to 105. You know, it's hard to imagine that That difference in PaO2, which really amounts to probably a a 1% difference, I'd say, maybe 1% or at most 2% differences in oxygen saturation, it's hard to imagine that that's going to lead to a significant change in outcomes. I think that you have kind of a relatively wide range of PaO2 to target now. So anywhere from 68 to about 100 is fine but don't use
2: hyperoxia.
0: Well said, Rob, well said. Well, Peter, you're going to wrap us up here. Final comments as we close out this podcast.
2: Yeah, and I would just echo with both John and Rob that this wasn't a restricted versus liberal. This is a restricted versus a moderate approach, right? It wasn't really a crazy liberal approach with high flow O2 unabated. The sad part is, and the good part is, The good first is that we are moving medicine and emergency medicine and critical care forward. I would just remind our listeners that this reflects movement in academic settings where these studies were done, that much like lung protective ventilation and low tidal ventilation, we still struggle in many arenas to accomplish that. We're probably closer to being there at 85% of the time in academic settings but we still may be failing in other places. Typically, it takes about 10 plus years for people's practice habit to catch up with the evidence-based literature. So just a reminder of that. That's about it.
0: Well said. Well, gentlemen, thanks so much for the discussion this podcast. It's been exceedingly helpful. A very common scenario that is occurring daily, if not weekly, in terms of our EDs and ICUs taking care of the post-arrest patient. So certainly our congrats, To the authors of the box trial with two New England Journal publications looking at post-arrest BP that we discussed last time and now post-arrest oxygenation with the caveats that we've all just recently talked about. My thanks once again for listening to this podcast here on CCPEM. Please let us know if you have any questions. Always shoot us an email through the website. But if hearing none, seeing none, receiving none, we will very much look forward to talking to all of you on our next podcast. Bye for now.